Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. The following is a Podcast One and Reels channel presentation. This program contains graphic violence and sexual situations. Viewer discretion is advised. His weapons of choice are bombs. His targets are seemingly random. His twisted motive to save the human race. Living as a disheveled hermit in a remote cabin, a genius-level mathematician plots a sinister decades-long campaign of indiscriminate murder. When you read his letters and you read the intent of what he was trying to do, it's, it's frightening. No matter what his reasoning, when you kill somebody like that, when you plan it, and when you pick out the individual that you want to kill, you're playing God. Leading the FBI on one of the longest and most expensive manhunts in history. This is a case that went on for 18 years, and it was a big mystery. It was completely unknown as to who was behind all of these bombings. The world would know him only by his iconic police sketch. And it's not until this genius makes a fatal miscalculation that the identity of one of America's first lone wolf terrorists would finally be revealed. Meet Ted Kaczynski. In my 31 years as a uh, criminal investigator in the FBI, he was one of the most evil people that I'd ever come in contact with. A.K.A. the Unabomber. A recluse who hid from society until murder made him famous. For almost 20 years, Ted Kaczynski terrorized the country. He got the general public to be afraid to get on an airplane, to be afraid to open a package. He got a kick out of it. He loved the idea of having control. He was a terrorist, and he knew it, and he enjoyed it. The public's interest has never faded. People are still fascinated uh, with the Unabomb case and Ted Kaczynski in particular because it was such a long-lasting case that... Um, reached all kinds of people and touched all kinds of lives. In 2011, an auction was held of Ted Kaczynski's personal items, and about $200,000 was raised, and that money went to help his victims. Multiple documentaries and TV movies about Kaczynski have been produced. In 2017, actor Paul Bettany played Kaczynski in the Discovery Channel's eight-part miniseries titled Manhunt Unabomber. Kaczynski was a mad genius. His acts of domestic terrorism made him one of the most infamous killers of the 20th century. Well, he spent years perfecting his craft of uh, murder by bomb. And if you strip away all of the psycho babble, he's nothing but a cold-blooded killer. But how did a teenage Harvard prodigy hit rock bottom and become a twisted lone wolf killer? As a young child, Teddy, as his parents call him, is happy and well-adjusted until he develops a case of hives and is rushed to the hospital. He had a bad reaction to something, and he was left alone in the hospital for a week or two weeks. And according to his mother, he was never the same thereafter. From then on, Ted is quiet and very reserved in social situations. However, in elementary school... He is labeled a genius for posting a 167 IQ. Ted was a genius, and uh, during his childhood, it was readily apparent that he was very, very good in math. Needless to say, he's skipping a grade. Although a genius, school is not an enjoyable environment for Ted. His shy and withdrawn demeanor makes him a target for bullies. 
Ted's only close friend is his younger brother, David. Growing up as a child, he got along great with his brother, but that was about the only person he got along with. He did not get along with his, uh, with his mom or dad. He was arguing with them all the time. As they get older, the Kaczynski brothers are extremely close and both share a love of nature. David Kaczynski would later say that he looked up to his older brother Ted when they were young, and they spent a lot of time together. However, Ted's desire to be isolated from the rest of the world is becoming evident to his family and neighbors. In his book, David Kaczynski recalls a conversation that he had with his mother when he was young, and he asked her why his big brother Ted didn't have any friends. His mother blamed it on abandonment issues that Ted had from being left in the hospital. And then she made David Kaczynski promise that he would never abandon his brother. Ted secludes himself in a room his father created in the attic. If you look at pictures of Ted and you look at uh, his childhood, it seems very normal. But when you kind of peel it back a little bit more, what you see is a person who, at a pretty young age, wanted to be isolated. In his solitude, Ted studies math and chemistry, and he also discovers a new hobby, making bombs. Okay, uh, stand way over there. Further. years later, we found uh, some things that indicated he was experimenting with powders and things like that. Ted's fascination with explosives in school will be brushed off as nothing more than childish pranks. Ted graduates early from high school in 1958, and at just 16 years old, receives a math scholarship to Harvard. Unfortunately, he's not as affluent as the other older students. According to an article in The Atlantic, he has one suitcase with only two changes of clothes. And probably because he was young, very mature academically, certainly, uh, but not so much so emotionally, he kind of became the butt of, of issues and problems with some of the other people. Ted's lack of social skills didn't make him very popular with his Harvard classmates. He was known as being loud and inconsiderate in the dorm, and he had these piles of food and trash that created an awful stench. While Ted is at Harvard, he enrolls in what will be an extremely controversial psychological behavioral program. The experiments that he underwent subjected him to abusive attacks that assaulted his ego and his beliefs. So let me get this straight. Are you conveying to me standing right here, right now, that you honestly believe and would defend this absolute nonsensical drivel? Well, I... Well, I... The purpose of the experiment was to see how someone could stand up under pressure. But you can imagine how someone like Ted Kaczynski would respond to that because he had personality and social issues. In spite of the experiments, Kaczynski graduates from Harvard. He goes on to complete his master's at the University of Michigan and receives his doctorate by age 25. From there, Kaczynski becomes the youngest mathematics associate professor in the history of Berkeley up to that point. But this academic achievement was overshadowed by social discomfort and disappointment. 
when he was an instructor at Berkeley, he just didn't fit. I think his makeup wasn't such that he could he could stand before a class of students, and he just had no patience with them. He would argue with them with first year <laughs> first year math students and all. It was something that he just ultimately gave up. Ted ultimately moves to the isolated mountains of Montana and lives in a small cabin on a plot of land that he and his brother David had purchased in the early 1970s. This cabin was uh, 10 by 12 foot. It was not insulated. It was uh, bare wood, dirt floors, had a potbelly stove to keep it warm. His original goal was to become self-sufficient. So he taught himself survival skills like organic farming and tracking small game. Although Ted Kaczynski lives in a remote area, he does have neighbors who live nearby. Kaczynski rides an old bike into town to visit the local library. He's an avid reader of classic literature and books on sociology and political philosophy. However, real estate development and industrial projects started clearing out the forest near where Ted was. And that allegedly pushed him over the edge. And he realized there really isn't any escape from modern-day civilization. Uh, I think this made him even more upset. Kaczynski develops his own anti-technology, anti-development, and anti-government philosophies. His anger grows until finally compelling him to act. At one point, Ted wrote that he was feeling increasingly troubled and frustrated. He went on to write, I calm myself by thinking, just wait till this summer, then I'll kill. From his remote Montana cabin, he begins his campaign of terror against everything he hates in modern society. A while later, at a Northwestern University office, engineering professor Buckley Christ is checking out a mysterious package that has just arrived in the mailroom. Oh, I don't get it. That's my name and the return address, but I've never seen this before. That's not even my handwriting. Bizarre. Let me take a look at it. Maybe I can figure out. Ted Kaczynski's first bomb has just detonated. But the reign of terror against society is only beginning. Who will be the next innocent target of his deadly rage? In 1978... Ted Kaczynski mails his first bomb to Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. That's not even my handwriting. Bizarre. Let me take a look at it. Maybe I can figure out. While the attack is not fatal, it does leave its victim with minor injuries. When a second bomb goes off at Northwestern, the ATF and the United States Postal Inspection Service launch an investigation. The United States Postal Inspection Service is the federal law enforcement office for the post office. The inspection service was involved in this case back in the 70s when we got notice of the first bombs. And ATF was involved in it because they handle bombings in the, in the country that are non-terrorist. Around the same time, Ted is running out of money. So he leaves his Montana cabin to live in Chicago. Here, he lands a job working for his younger brother, David, who was unaware of Ted's interest in bombs. And what we learned later was he was uh, placing the bombs uh, into the mail stream in Chicago at that particular time. Uh, he obviously needed some money, so he went to work at a uh, foam-cutting factory uh, that his brother, David, was uh, managing. 
David is living a much different existence. He's warm, social, and even has a new love interest named Linda Patrick. Here's one of my favorite pictures of us. I can't believe after all these years I haven't met your brother. He's a character. While working at the factory, Ted Kaczynski becomes attracted to one of his fellow co-workers, Ellen Tarmichael, whom he attempts to court. Saying it, we ought to... And went out on a date or so with her and was very infatuated with her. She didn't see the relationship uh, ever taking hold. Technology is it's destabilizing society, and the consequences have been disastrous for the human race. Listen, Ted, it, it's getting late, and I really need to get going. But thank you for dinner. Sorry, I just, I just need to go home. Although Ted desires a romantic relationship, Ellen is not interested. Ted allegedly responds by writing and posting derogatory limericks around the factory floor. David Kaczynski was Ted's boss at the factory. And after more than one inappropriate incident, he had no choice but to fire his older brother. Ted, Ted, I thought we already talked about this. You, you can't write these vulgar poems about Ellen and tape them up around the building. Hell, everyone's read them. Come on. You know she likes him. No, Ted, she doesn't. And you've put me in a really awkward position, being that I recommended you for the job. What? Over some lewd limericks? Oh, jeez. She's your supervisor. Ted, I'm going to have to let you go. His brother had to fire him. Um, I think that's when their relationship kind of became irrevocable. A furious Kaczynski eventually moves back to Montana to resume his secluded life and his monstrous work of making bombs. November 1979. American Airlines Flight 444 has departed Chicago O'Hare Airport. Unbeknownst to the flight crew or passengers, one of Kaczynski's bombs is on board. It has been disguised as a package and is in the mailbag inside the plane's cargo. The bomb has been set to detonate when the plane reaches a certain altitude. The bomb detonates. But due to faulty construction, the explosion is far less severe than intended. Smoke fills the cabin, and the plane makes an emergency landing. It is later determined that the bomb was powerful enough to have destroyed the aircraft had it worked correctly. And that's when the FBI became involved in it. ATF had the first two bombs at their laboratory, and that's when we first started realizing we had a uh, serial bomber. The FBI creates the acronym UNIBOM to refer to the ongoing investigation. UN is for university, and many of his bombs were placed in and around universities and, and targeted professors. Uh, a is for aircraft because there was the American Airlines uh, plane that was bombed. And then the bomb is just B-O-M short for bomber or bombing. The next Unabom attack is again against the airline industry. Soon after that, there was the president of United Airlines that received a package bomb at his home.
since the wood did open that, that package and it did explode. And fortunately at that time, early stages of the Unabomber's career, he was not that efficient a bomb maker and, and there were substantial injuries but not death associated with that. And he survived that. The bomb sent to Percy Wood doesn't have the result Kaczynski wants. Authorities begin to suspect that the bomber has yet to perfect his deadly craft. It was very apparent from the investigation with regard to who the Unabomber might be that he probably did not have uh, any military or bomb background because his early bombs were extremely crude and rudimentary. With only bomb fragments and nothing connecting the victims, the FBI has very little to go on with its investigation. The FBI is frustrated with its inability to trace the bombs back to their maker, despite the fact that he mails bombs through the U.S. Postal Service. It's not until years later that the FBI will untangle Kaczynski's step-by-step mailing procedures. When he would go on his forays, as he called them, to mail his devices, he would get to Missoula and board a bus uh, and travel to the Bay Area where he would place the uh, uh, bombs into the mail stream there. Meanwhile, Kaczynski is accelerating his attacks. 1985 was the Unabomber's most prolific year. He sent and placed four bombs that year. Any questions, class? The first bomb isn't mailed, but hand-delivered by Kaczynski to his former place of business, UC Berkeley. It is here where John Hauser, a graduate student and astronaut hopeful, picks up what he believes is a three-ring binder, only to discover it's a bomb. Wonder who left this? And uh, it blew um, John Hauser's uh, couple of his fingers off, uh, kind of the graphic uh, crime scene. He survived the bomb uh, and the devices, but he was never able to complete his uh, uh, regimen to become an astronaut. Another bomb is found at the Boeing Aircraft Company in Auburn, Washington. A mailroom clerk finds the suspicious package. Yeah, I'm still not sure what to do about this package that's been left here. You think I ought to call the police? They're bomb squad. Seriously? But the bomb is successfully disarmed without causing injury. Kaczynski detonates a third bomb at the University of Michigan. The victim suffers shrapnel wounds and burns from the explosion. But it is his fourth bomb that will cause the most damage yet. The most effective of those bombs uh, appeared in December of 1985 outside the back door of a small computer company in Sacramento, uh, California, called Rentec Computer Company. The owner of that company was a young man named Hugh Scrutton. Hugh Scrutton is taking out the trash when he notices a block of wood with large nails protruding from it. Thinking it's just a piece of trash, he attempts to remove the road hazard. It detonated when he touched it, and the force of the explosion essentially eviscerated him. The blast partially exposes his heart. Call an ambulance! Hugh Scrutton 
is pronounced dead 30 minutes later. A couple of uh, men uh, were in the parking lot and came to his aid, uh, had a difficult time because uh, they had no place to do chest compressions because his chest was blown apart. Hugh Scruton was the first confirmed casualty of the Unabomber. Ted Kaczynski wrote later, uh, the results were satisfying. I finally uh, found a way to uh, humanely kill. Uh, it wasn't a humane killing. It was a very uh, painful way for Mr. Scruton to die. Now that the Unabomber has finally succeeded in murder, the FBI races to uncover the identity of the elusive killer, but they fail to make any real progress. I think Ted was so difficult to find, he didn't follow the pattern of a usual mail bomb suspect. Usually, we get involved in a mail bomb case, one of the three common reasons, money, revenge, or jealousy. And with these, there was no connection with any of his victims. There was no connection between any of the victims and the people who were listed as the senders. I think that's what really made him hard to find. But Ted Kaczynski is about to make a tactical mistake that will tip the scales in the FBI's favor, bringing them one step closer to capturing the mysterious Unabomber. Murder Made Me Famous will be back after a word from our sponsors. This program contains graphic violence and sexual situations. Viewer discretion is advised. It's been over seven years since Ted Kaczynski started his extremist agenda against modern society. He has maimed over a half dozen victims and killed one with his self-made bombs. The FBI has had no luck discovering Ted's identity or location. But they catch a break on February 20th, 1987, when Kaczynski chooses a target that represents his hatred of technology. Tammy Fluey is working at a computer store in Salt Lake City, Utah. As she looks out the window, she notices a man wearing a hoodie and sunglasses kneeling by her car. Look at there. Look at what that bastard just left next to my car. I'm not too sure what that is. Uh, don't worry about it. I'll throw it away after we're finished. Tammy's co-worker later picks up the object left by the hooded stranger, and it explodes. But he survived uh, the bombing. So Tammy Fluey was the witness to the Unabomb device being placed or to the Unabomber. So they brought a police artist in, and he did uh, a composite. The sketch of the Unabomber goes national and becomes one of the most infamous images in modern history. The media and the public latch on to the FBI's Unabomb acronym for the case and create the now-famous nickname, the Unabomber. The FBI offices get flooded with tips, but none of them lead to the actual killer. Uh, pretty much every divorced woman turned in her former husband as, uh, as a suspect with the Unabomb case. Complicating the investigation is the fact that the Unabomber has seemingly ceased all activities. After Kaczynski was seen on February 20th, 1987 at Cam's Computer Store, and after he kind of became an iconic image with uh, the gray hooded sweatshirt and the aviator sunglasses, he vanished for those uh, six years. During this time, Ted Kaczynski returns to his Montana cabin and works to perfect his bombs. During those six years, he literally took time off to build a smaller, more capable, and more powerful bomb. You finding everything okay? 
Yeah, thanks. I'm uh, just doing some research. What you researching? What was that? Nothing. If you need anything, please be sure to let me know. Around this time, Ted learns his younger brother David and David's longtime girlfriend Linda are getting married. Ted was allegedly furious at David for getting married, and he wrote a letter to him saying that it was the biggest mistake he'd ever made and calling Linda, who he'd never met, a terrible person. He ended the letter by disowning his brother David completely. I really do wish Ted were here. I just don't understand that. I'm sorry. I know how much he means to you. As the years pass, the Unabomber investigation stalls, and agents are pulled away onto other assignments. But FBI agent John Conway remains a constant force. From 1987, after the CAM sighting, the original uh, case agent for Unabom, uh, John Conway, who was in San Francisco, was kind of looking at all this and working on this on his own. Hey, John, you almost done? Yeah, just wrapping up. All right, don't work too late. I wouldn't dream of it. I had another 25 cases in addition to the Unibomb case. Even though it was a major case, it was not considered that in San Francisco. Nobody felt as though it was prosecutable. I couldn't get anybody in the division to assist me. He had a great story. He said that all those years I was doing this on my own. No one wanted to be anywhere near this case. And in fact, I was told by people at FBI headquarters, look, we haven't heard from him for a few years. Why don't we just conclude that he's dead and close this case for now and move on? And John resisted that. John said, I will never close this case. And, uh, and just for the record, I don't think this guy's dead. The FBI gets a break when the Unabomber resurfaces with two assaults on members of academia. In June of 1993, he came out with a vengeance. And he basically had simultaneous bombings on the East Coast and the West Coast. The first bomb is sent to geneticist Charles Epstein at his home in Tiburon, California. The second bomb is mailed to Yale computer professor David Galerter. They detonate just two days apart. The bomb in Tiburon blows out kitchen windows, and it also costs Dr. Epstein three fingers. The bomb at Yale severely damaged David Galerter's right eye and also cost him the use of his right hand. With these latest attacks, government officials have had enough. The attorney general at the time, Janet Reno, and Louis Free, the director of the FBI, said enough is enough. So they convened and put together a task force of uh, FBI, postal inspectors, and uh, ATF agents. And I thought, hallelujah, this is great. Uh, that means, hopefully, that we're going to get some assistance with this case. Agents Terry Turchi and Jim Freeman are brought on to lead the new Unabomb task force. I'd like to introduce you to someone. Clinical psychologist Kathleen Puckett joins the team. I'll get straight to the point here. I'd like to bring Kathleen on as a fresh set of eyes. She has a PhD in clinical psychology, and I've worked with her before. Okay. Well, if you want her on the task force and you vouch for her, consider it done. Welcome aboard. Thank you. I can't wait to get started. We made the decision to bring in Kathy Puckett because she'd worked in the profiling area in the national uh, security or national counterintelligence arena, but she wasn't part of the established profiling group at Quantico. Additionally, they recruit John Conway, 
the agent who has carried the Unabomber case for the past six years. I mean, I knew Terry vaguely. I never worked with him on anything, but he called me up and he said, what would it take for you to give me a year of your time? I need you because of, of uh, the institutional knowledge of the case. And I said, I'll work the case as part of the task force. While the new task force is at work trying to discover who the Unabomber is, Kaczynski mails out a newer, more lethal bomb to Thomas Mosser, an advertising and PR executive. Hi. I'm so glad you're back. Oh, you and me both. It was a long week. Let me get your mail. Yeah, thanks. Hi, sweet pea. I promised her when you got home that we'd go get the Christmas tree. Oh, well, let's get ready to go then. Okay, here we go. Let's get our coats. Thomas's wife takes his daughter and they leave the room. Thomas starts sorting through some letters before settling on the package. It detonated and um, killed him um, on the spot. Kaczynski incorrectly believes that Mosser represented Exxon Oil during the Valdez oil spill. In his mind, this is revenge for crimes against the earth. It was a very uh, powerful uh, uh, bomb, and it had uh, external shrapnel placed in it, uh, uh, double-edged razor blades, and um, one-inch green paneling nails. Ted Kaczynski has successfully murdered another victim. It was a very sad instance. We had been trying to intercept a package before it got to its destination and killed people. And we had been telling people what to look for. Packages that had uh, a return address of someone that you didn't know. Packages that uh, you weren't expecting. Kaczynski's hatred of modern development is the impetus for his next attack. In Sacramento, California, Gilbert Murray, the new president of the California Forestry Association arrives at work to find a package postmarked for a former employee. I'll take it. Uh, Mr. Murray? Gilbert Murray's secretary warned him that the package looks suspicious. Kind of sounds like what they've been talking about on the news. And they even mildly joke about it. But Murray doesn't share her concerns. You have a good day. Gilbert Murray carries the package to his office. such a powerful uh, explosion, and uh, he was killed instantly uh, as a result of that. Ted Kaczynski has perfected his deadly bombs. He now plans to share his twisted philosophies with the world, but his fateful decision could cost him everything. By April 1995, Ted Kaczynski has murdered three people and injured over a dozen more with his package bombs. The FBI task force still has no strong leads on the Unabomber's identity, so they offer a $1 million reward for information leading to the arrest of the elusive bomber. The FBI and the Department of Justice and the United States government wanted Unabom solved so badly at this point because we have people literally uh, being victims in their own homes, in their own places of business. So any price was a price that they were ready to pay. 
Meanwhile, Kaczynski is working on a new plan. His goal is to show the world the evils of modern society. In June of 1995, he mails out two packages. One is sent to the New York Times and the other to the Washington Post. Ted Kaczynski's manifesto is entitled Industrial Society and Its Future. And in this piece, he rants about the Industrial Revolution and how it's destroyed society. The Unabom Manifesto was the piece of the Unabom case that we were waiting for most of our lives. I mean, any time you have uh, words coming from your suspect, then they're starting to tell you something about his agenda, something about the person. It was like, this is a gift. However, along with the manifesto comes a harrowing choice for the papers to make. Publish the essay and the bombing stop. Refuse and they will continue. Kathy told us immediately, before we even made a decision or recommendation on what to do, that in her viewpoint, psychologically, this person can't stop bombing even if he wants to. While the Unabomber Task Force weighs its options on what to do with the manifesto, Kaczynski sends a letter to the San Francisco Chronicle, promising to blow up an airliner out of L.A. International Airport sometime during the next six days. When the threat came into LAX, bomb technicians from the FBI, the LAPD, and the sheriff's office set up a command post so they could act quickly if anything happened. The Unabomber's threat makes front-page news and leaves travelers on edge. The country is held hostage while waiting to see if Kaczynski will make good on his promise. Mr. White has a reaction to the latest Unabomber threat. Uh, I mean, we're... uh, I don't know that we have a specific reaction, and we're obviously aware of the steps that they're taking. The FAA has indicated what security measures are now in effect. Days later, after initiating the panic at LAX, the Unabomber pulls back his threat, claiming it was only a prank. So he's playing. Now he's toying with society. And that was what he was trying to accomplish. He was trying to control things. The task force is still left with the Unabomber's original ultimatum. At first, it decides against publishing the manifesto, but then reconsiders. Terry, we think we made a mistake. Kathy and I think we should publish. My gut's telling me the same thing. Let's put it out there. Hope somebody reads it, connects the dots, and comes forward. We good? Absolutely. Thank you. Attorney General Janet Reno and FBI Director Louis Free agree with the change of plans and call a historic meeting between the FBI and publishers from the news agencies. We were thinking to ourselves, this is pretty amazing. The FBI is going to sit down with the New York Times and with the Washington Post and say, let's all work together. This ought to be really, really good. The FBI recommends that the manifesto be published in the Washington Post and New York Times. And both papers agree in an effort to save lives. When the manifesto hits newsstands, the FBI hopes someone will recognize the personality within the writing. The FBI gets exactly what it wants when Ted's brother and sister-in-law, David and Linda, read the article in stunned shock. Linda Patrick first kind of focused on the geographical information. Isn't your brother Theodore 
Chicago oriented here in the 1970s? Obviously, the answer is yes. He was in Salt Lake working. He was at UC Berkeley. He was in the Bay Area. I'm kind of worried about this. David read the manifesto, and the thing that jumped out at him right away was a term called cool-headed logician. He recognized that as something Ted had often talked about. David, your brother's writings, beliefs, even his phrases like this one. I'm telling you, there's too many similarities to not even consider him. David! I know, I know. He's he's my brother. What if it's not him? He'll never forgive me. David Kaczynski had looked up to his brother when they were growing up, and he had also made a promise to his mother that he would never abandon his brother. But now here he was with a moral dilemma. Does he call the FBI and tell them that his brother might be the serial bomber they're looking for? Ultimately, David and Linda decide to go to the FBI. They're accompanied by an attorney. Kathleen Puckett. Hello, I'm Tony Biskegli. These are my clients, David Kaczynski and Linda Patrick. And although David is distraught and nervous, he also knows this is something he has to do. I can't thank you enough for joining me. I can't imagine how difficult this must be. You have no idea. I'm hoping we can find something that eliminates my brother Ted from being a suspect. Of course. Please. Have a seat. So when we did find out that Ted Kaczynski was a suspect, it was just get all the information we possibly could. David had saved all the letters that his brother had written him over the years, and the postmarks on those letters put Ted in certain places at certain times. Thanks to this incriminating evidence, the task force puts Ted Kaczynski's cabin under constant surveillance. The FBI then forms an arrest plan. We had a plan A and a plan B. (laughs) And plan A was just to wait him out, and eventually he was going to go to town. Unfortunately, the plan was leaked to the media, and CBS News was going to run a story. But after some urging from the FBI, CBS agreed to give a 24-hour courtesy window before going public. And that day, when the plans were made, we got to go, because if we don't, CBS had said they're going to broadcast that we're investigating an individual in Montana. Well, we don't know if Ted's got access to anything or not. So it was all go and go now. Two undercover FBI agents, along with Jerry Burns, a U.S. Forest Service officer and a lifelong local resident, approach the cabin. Jerry and Ted know each other and are on cordial speaking terms. Under the guise of checking property lines for upcoming mining projects in Ted Kaczynski's area, Max was able to get himself, Jerry, and FBI agent Tom McDaniel near the cabin without raising suspicion. Authorities are closer to the Unabomber than they've ever been. But will the elusive Ted Kaczynski escape the law once again? After almost two decades of costly and exhausting investigative work, The FBI finally has the Unabomber surrounded in his Montana cabin. Under the guise of checking property lines for upcoming mining projects in Ted Kaczynski's area, the FBI was able to get near the cabin without raising suspicion. Ted! Are you home? Ted! We could hear some rustling around in the cabin. And uh, all of a sudden, the door jerked open. Oh, hey, Ted. Uh, These gentlemen with a mining company... I was wondering if you could, maybe you could show us around your property's boundary stakes. 
they're clearly marked. Oh, yeah, if you know where they're at. And the plan had been if he gets within arm reach, grab him. Okay, just let me get my jacket. Jerry snatched him, and uh, Tom McDaniel, who's a big man, wrapped him up in a big old bear hug. FBI, we have a federal warrant to search your cabin. I got the privilege of walking around in front of Mr. Kaczynski and identified us as FBI agents. Ted Kaczynski, covered in soot and wearing tattered clothes, stops resisting and gives up. The Unabomber is finally brought down. When the FBI searches the cabin, they find a cache of bomb components, thousands of handwritten journal pages, descriptions of the Unabomber crimes, and one live bomb ready for mailing. They also find what appears to be the original typed manuscript of Industrial Society and its Future. When word gets out that the Unabomber has finally been apprehended, the media descends en masse. The media knew that we had the Unabomber in custody, and there were literally, uh, I don't know, 20 or 30 uh, sound trucks and various other types of vehicles. They were all behind us, following us into uh, town. They wanted a picture of the Unabomber. The minute we opened the door and stepped out, they're flashing with their cameras. The Unabomber is finally revealed to the world. Before his trial, Kaczynski's legal team advises him to enter an insanity defense, but he refuses, insisting that he is sane. In 1998, Kaczynski agrees to a plea bargain to avoid a trial in which he could be portrayed as mentally ill. He is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. With the long hunt finally over, John Conway, the agent who has been carrying the case since 1987, decides to turn in his badge. Uh, a month after we picked up Kaczynski, I retired, and that's fine. I've been trying to forget about it ever since. <laughs> David Kaczynski is reportedly relieved that his brother does not get the death penalty. He ultimately becomes an advocate against capital punishment. For his part in turning in his brother, David receives the $1 million reward posted by the FBI during the investigation. He promptly gives the money away to victims of his brother's brutal attacks. Although David has repeatedly reached out to his brother through letters, he has not spoken to Ted since the arrest. Ted Kaczynski is still alive today in a supermax prison in Colorado. In prison, Kaczynski befriends Ramsey Youssef, perpetrator of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, and Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. The trio reportedly discuss religion and politics and form a friendship which lasts until McVeigh's execution in 2001. To this day, those who pursued Ted Kaczynski for years reflect on his legacy. Well, it is amazing to me that after 20 years that there's such a fascination in American, American people. But it's such an interesting case. I mean, it, it took 18 years to to actually bring Ted Kaczynski to justice. We would have expected to find somebody who was maybe a little bit more sophisticated and that type of thing. But, uh, and then, of course, the little piece of this, he was a genius. He was a graduate of Harvard University. He'd gone there at 16. No one expected this kind of thing, and yet that's what we found. If the public were ever allowed to read his autobiography and the writings that we took, almost 40,000 pages, I believe, from the cabin of his journals and so forth, they would be amazed at what an evil person he was.
In my opinion, what Ted was trying to accomplish was just revenge for everything he deemed in his life that people had slighted him or mistreated him or whatever in his mind, he just wanted revenge. And that was his means of getting it. That concludes this episode of Murder Made Me Famous. Don't forget to go to Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com for clips, extras, and more. And don't forget to subscribe on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and Apple Podcasts.